Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Tom McNally. This is a tough one. This is a tough conversation, but it's so beautiful, and I think it's one we all need to hear, maybe now more than ever. Tam and I are talking today about difficult diagnoses, about living with illness and disease, and how to listen and love each other through it. Tom is a pediatric palliative care doctor, and I had so many questions for him. Like, what is palliative care? Does it mean that someone is dying anytime soon? The answer to that one is no. No, it doesn't. Is it the same as hospice care? The answer to that one is also no. And how can we all take care of each other and really listen to what our loved ones need and want? It's hard to talk about disease and the journeys we're on without acknowledging and talking about death. So we talk about it. We talk about things like we're all dying and the questions of why are we afraid of death? And Tom and I both share some pretty intimate and poignant moments from the journeys we've both been on with our parents. This conversation was uncomfortable for me at so many moments. These are tough, raw topics. But Tom also has a wonderful way of making it peaceful and hopeful. Please don't be afraid of this conversation. Or be afraid of it. That's okay. But listen anyway and share and maybe listen to it again. I hope that you'll ask about palliative care when you need to with your own doctors. And I hope you'll be curious about it. Because at the end of the day, we can't always avoid illness and disease, and we certainly can't avoid dying and death. But with people like Dr. Tom McNally by our side, we can face the tough stuff with a focus on how we really live in whatever time we have. And isn't that the way it should be? Wouldn't it be beautiful if that's how we all approach life every single day, illness or not, disease or no disease? After spending this time with Tom and and focusing on how we can care for each other, it left me thinking about a lot of things, left me wondering about so much, but mostly it left me feeling pretty darn sure that the greatest medicines we have are compassion and love. Hi, Tom. It is great to have you here today. Good morning. It's so nice to see you. I'm super excited to have you here with us today for multiple reasons. My own personal interest in your passion and your expertise in palliative care, but also just to learn a little bit more about you and about how we can incorporate compassion and palliative care into our lives. I wanted to ask you first to just Tell us a little bit about you. You and I have met on numerous occasions, but share with us a little bit about your role, what you do, and your journey as a physician, as a doctor. You bet. 
My background is that I was actually was what they call a non-traditional student in medical school, which is code for one of the old guys. I started medical school just before my 39th birthday. I had been a teacher for a number of years before that. And I really enjoyed teaching and particularly found that I enjoyed the aspect of ongoing continuous learning and being connected one-on-one with kids and with their families. And I found that I actually really enjoyed talking to parents. And so point came where my educational career was not really headed the direction I wanted it to. And I was thinking about really where would I find more fulfillment? I decided to go to medical school and, and had really fantastic support from my family to do that. And so did my pre-med requirements in my late 30s and then went into med school at the University of Iowa and started that in the year 2000. And while I was at Iowa, two things happened that were really important that helped guide my career. The first year I was there, they hired a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor for the first time. And this person and I kind of found our way together through those four years as he was getting established as a new faculty member and as I was trying to find my path into medicine. And so he mentored me into this field. His name is Joe Chen, a wonderful guy. And also what happened is that the University of Iowa started to teach more and expanded their teaching of palliative care. And so unlike people who not that long before me wouldn't have had much of exposure to palliative care, I started to learn about it very early in my medical career. And this all was really important to me because in my own personal life, my father was a doctor. He had just retired from medicine in 1995. And then within eight or nine months, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. Mm. And his treatment course was very complicated for a number of reasons. And he ultimately, he lived for another four years, but they were four very difficult years. And he died in late January, so almost 21 years ago, 22 years ago of 2000. And he died in the hospital where he had worked for 30 years. And his death was a really, I would say, was not a beautiful death. He ended up having a lot of medical technology prolonging his dying, in essence. He was intubated. He was in the ICU for many, many weeks. He was very agitated and anxious. He had a lot of medicine, so it was sedated. He couldn't communicate very well and was struggling to get well enough to even go home. And I think he would have liked to go home and he probably would have liked to go home even to die. But as it turned out, he died still on the ventilator in the midst of a septic episode. And my brother and my mother and I were at his bedside as he died. In some ways, it was such a real illustration to me of the excesses of medical technology we were looking at him and he was not really responsive at all. And we could watch his heart rate kind of drop down, drop down, drop down. His oxygen saturations are dropping down, but the ventilator was still pumping air in and out of his body. And so when he clearly appeared to be dead, he was still sort of being, I guess, intervened with even his dead body. We had kind of been sort of left in the room nurses came by, no physicians came by. It was a very solitary experience. 
And we finally had to go out and say, I think my father has died and it took, there wasn't a physician and quickly available. So it took about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes before someone could come up and actually turn off the ventilator and, and pronounce him dead. There were a lot of tender moments in his death. Younger brother's a musician and he brought an instrument and we played some music and sang for him. And there was a new recording of his group that came by as well. So there were some really lovely moments that we were able to create. And there was this kind of technological horror going on at the same time. And that really stuck with me. And one thing that I've learned is that as physicians, we hope to be objective and to think about the world in sort of uh, dry terms. But our experiences like this really inform profoundly the way we approach difficult subjects such as death, grief, loss. And it's important for us to be aware of them, I think, and to do some reckoning with them in order to make sure that we're thinking about our own presence in the relationship, in the medical relationship. Yeah, there's so many contradictions in in the end of life, especially when we're there with our loved ones. I was there with my dad in his final, really final months. He had Parkinson's and a, a long kind of slow decline. And we were fortunate enough that he was in an assisted living facility. And we had sort of that partnership with with people who walk to these journeys much, much more than we ever had as a family. But there are those moments where I call them the what are we trying to do here moments. You know, what are what are we really after? So I want to back up a little bit, Tom, because you and I now we're sharing these personal experiences with death and in I want to talk to you about grief as well. But what I what I don't want to do is I don't want to confuse the whole idea of palliative care with it means that your loved one is in their final moments. So with your experience now, when you were board certified as a physical medicine doctor for a number of years, and then it's only now in the in the recent past that you got your board certification in palliative care. So tell me the difference because I see people bristle. I hear kind of hear them resist to when we talk about palliative care. They think it's hospice. They think it's, this is the end of life. As opposed to living with something, they think it means we're saying goodbye. So will you just help us understand briefly, like, what are the differences? Yeah, you know, I think one way of thinking about it is that, you know, medicine for many, many centuries was really about a palliative approach, which was to walk alongside people, try to minimize their suffering, to deal with their symptoms. But there weren't a lot of curative options for things. I mean, we didn't really even have true sort of reasonable surgeries until the mid 1800s. I mean, there were some things that you could do, but, you know, really very almost barbarian things without, you know, anesthesia, probably more, more painful and certainly not a lot of treatments for cancer or anything like that. So this approach towards cure, which is really powerful and has really transformed human life in the last 120 years is a new thing. And so what a palliative doctor is, I think, returning to the notion of walking alongside folks and, again, not necessarily focusing on cure, but focusing very much on care mm. and emphasizing that we can care for you. And if care means supporting your desire for a cure, I will definitely be there. But, you know, for example, as you know, I've worked a lot in neuromuscular clinics and taking care of patients with Duchenne dystrophy. And... If I met a family, you know, when their child is four years old and 
had just been diagnosed with Duchenne dystrophy, I would do all the things that we talked about today, which mm-hmm. is what's important to you. What are the things you're looking forward to? What are the things you're worried about? How can we support you? Here are the resources we have. We have spiritual care. Here are medicines that we think can help with discomfort or here are, here's massage or acutherapy that might be helpful for your child. Here's, you know, make sure that these specialists are involved in their care. And that would continue. And that relationship would continue over the years. And mm-hmm. every time you came to see your neuromuscular clinic, the palliative care doctor would stop and say, Hey, how are things going? You know, what's foremost on your mind right now? How are you getting through? What's helping you cope day to day as a parent of a child with Duchenne dystrophy? Are you aware that you could be connected with these resources? What's important for you right now? And to keep asking those questions so that we're helping both mirror back to the experience that you're having and also shining a light into places where you might not be looking. That's the way I see the work. Okay. And do I understand it correctly too, that you also, it's not just about the patient, right? It's the whole family. Oh, and, and you might talk to siblings, you might talk to friends, of course, the parents, extended family, but it's really, it's about supporting their community, the patient's community. Absolutely. I remember the first time I met you and I was so just, I guess, intrigued and inspired because you said to me, I'm a physical medicine doctor, but I'm in the, you called it the twilight of my career. And I want to end it on palliative care and that kind of compassionate, caring practice of medicine. So Will you share with us a little bit about your own journey? Because I give, I think that gives us insights into what palliative care really is and why it was so compelling to you and you were drawn to that, to actually go back in the twilight of your career and become board certified in palliative care. Yeah, you bet. And, you know, thank you for, for really emphasizing the fact that palliative care is is not strictly about caring for dying patients, although that's certainly part of what we do. But the way I tend to, think about it, like to think about it, it's actually very close to rehabilitation medicine, which is a few years back, they changed, they had a motto for the American Association or American Academy of PM&R, which was adding life to years rather than adding years to life. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I feel about palliative care too. We're adding life in the midst of what may be life-limiting, life-threatening illnesses. And particularly in the care of children, when a palliative care team can follow a child through their entire childhood, Mm-hmm. and be focused on all of the things that matter to that child and that family. So their physical comfort, their emotional comfort, their spiritual yearnings. And thinking about that with an interdisciplinary team that really wraps around the, the family. The word palliate means to cloak. And I think about palliation as being a kind of medical hug. Yeah. It's a, it's a wraparound set of services to cover people from the suffering of the world as much as possible in multiple directions. That journey for me was in part inspired by my dad, but it was also inspired by the people that I worked with, particularly when I completed my residency, which is at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I started teaching a class that included rehabilitation medicine, geriatrics, chronic pain, and palliative care. And so I worked really closely with the palliative care doctors there, and one in particular, a man named Stu Farber, who is a really important inspiration to me and to a number of other people, great educator. He really taught me about how to dislocate myself from a medical narrative and 
what I mean by that is, you know, we in, in medicine, we get taught a really powerful way of understanding the world. Some people call it an illness script. And it's basically you overlay these, these templates, these patterns of how the human body works onto specific individual experiences. Palliative care, I think, was a way for me to dislodge from the medical narrative and recenter myself in the story of the person that I was face-to-face with as a clinician. And it's not that I forget everything that I've learned as a doctor, but I just get to dislocate from it a little bit and be more fully present for the experience of another person. It sounds to me, and I know this is not how this is used medically or scientifically, but the thing that comes to mind for me is medicine starts to become personalized. And I know with, you know, my son, Joseph, who I talk about a lot, his diagnosis of Duchenne, one of the things I, I say all the time is Joseph is not his diagnosis. He's he's not a Duchenne boy. He is a boy, now a young man, and he has Duchenne, but that's not what he is. And so it sounds to me like the approach of palliative care is that you look beneath, beyond, around the diagnosis at at who is it behind that that label. Does that sound like? That's exactly right. And we're trying to make sure that the things that matter to Joseph or to any other child are brought forward and articulated. And so, you know, one of the, when I meet a family for the first time, usually the first question I ask them, no matter what age their child is, is tell me about your child. It's a wonderful moment for me to be able to be present and to hear the things that bring delight and love and joy into a parent's heart or or for the child to tell me directly. And that's another thing I'd like to you know, just share about palliative care. I mean, every you hear, oh, it's gotta be so sad, it's gotta be so difficult. It's actually incredibly joyful work. We get to be witness to this wonderful world of, of light and care and gratitude that exists in families. We're the fortunate witnesses to that and we can try to bring it to the surface. So this is where I think the contrast comes in is that happens really within the context of, for lack of a better word, within the context of some suffering or some fear, within something that none of us ever wanted. Nobody wants the diagnosis of pediatric cancer. Nobody hopes for a diagnosis of Duchenne or of spinal muscular atrophy or any number of things that can afflict our our children, of course, but even our, you know, our loved ones, our parents, our, our spouses, our friends. And I think that is an interesting contrast is within that sort of bucket of a diagnosis that's very difficult or a, just a, a journey that is not necessarily, we're not saying it has to be you're in your final moments of life. It's just, this is part of your life now. There can be so much peace and joy and comfort provided that really makes the the journey a little bit more palatable and, and dare I say, filled with beautiful moments. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go back a little bit because I'm always so interested in what drives people to, you know, choices and, and decisions that they make. So talk to me a little bit, if you if you would, about after your own dad passed away. And it was a, as you described it, you know, an un, it was uncomfortable. There was intervention, which made things more difficult, let's say. Talk to me about that very personal journey when it was your dad, about the process of grief and, and how that started to evolve into your passion in your career and how it in, informed you and inspired you. 
I will say my relationship with my dad was complicated. And so, you know, there's this idea of complicated grief. And so I think what I was aware of was this sense of abandonment that happened to us as a family, which was so different because when you're in a physician's family, a lot of doors are open for you very quickly. It's not fair, but you know, I can, if I say this is Dr. McNally calling and I call it a medical office, I get directly straight through. But this was a situation where it almost felt like because of our, my dad's relationship with the hospital and his colleagues, that we were even more isolated and left alone. I think people were uncomfortable. Docs were uncomfortable with this. And so I, th I thought about that a lot. And I also thought about my dad's experience and about his ambivalence about his end of life and the way he wanted to be cared for. I really got interested in the way physicians experience loss and the way they experience death and the ways that we are sort of taught to be invulnerable or to appear invulnerable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That actually works against us personally. And I think it works against our ability to care for folks. I think for me, what has always been is this theme is yearning to bring up the, the human side of my experience, which is emotions, connection, aspiration for deeper meaning into the work. And I saw this as one way of, of doing this, which is to make us a, a space for me personally, but also for the people around me to safely bring the things that, that are close to their hearts, that matter to them, out into the open. I think as a sort of substrate, what, what I found was that going to be with clinicians who were caring for dying patients, they needed care mm -hmm. as well as the patients and families that we were caring for as well. For sure. And I found that very compelling. As you and I are talking, we both keep referencing patients who are dying and death and grief. But I keep going back to saying palliative care does not mean it's your in you know your final days and and you're you're actively dying. But I think what I I do want to talk about though is what's wrong with saying as we're dying because from the moment we're born we're all marching towards death. We are we are all dying. You know it's it's funny. There's that old saying, right, that people used to say there's only two things you can count on for sure. It's death and taxes. And now I think, you know, people are pretty good at, like, figuring out how to not, not to pay taxes. So maybe really the only sure thing we know in this life is that it will end. And, you know, some people don't like it when I, when I talk about that. But it's just the truth and it's just real. And so I think that's some of the resistance. I talk to other parents and I, and I will say... Have you ever asked about palliative care? And they will, I mean, Tom, I can see their physical body language. They will stiffen and they will, you know, kind of back away from me. And they're like, palliative care? No, I'm not. We don't need palliative care. And I think what happens is it's a very concrete, it's an acknowledgement that, number one, somebody we love might be moving towards end of life faster than we would have thought. And also just the fact that we all, we're all going to die. And also the acknowledgement that we need help and we we maybe can't or shouldn't have to do this alone. So I think about parenting. We believe, I think, 150% when we are raising these sweet, beautiful babies into children and to young adults that they're going to outlive us. It's it's They say that, you know, we say that's the natural order. Our kids should, should live longer than us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but that's not the way it goes all the time. And some of us get a warning through a diagnosis, and some people lose children incredibly unexpectedly and never knew it was coming. And so I think we do a disservice that we avoid talking about that. Not that we want to think about it all the time, but acknowledging that it's a reality that there is great suffering and can we give it meaning and can we lessen it by acknowledging it and by just being there for each other? Why do you think we're so afraid of it? I don't know that we can answer that in such a short time together, but gosh, it would feel good if we could not be so afraid. Yeah, wouldn't it? I mean, I think it sure makes sense for us to be afraid of it. I mean, it's everything in our our beings yearns towards life and towards staying alive and I see this all the time when I see the way bodies will hold on to living at the very end of life too. I do think there's some cultural aspects to this as well, something about the American way of, and maybe the sort of dominant views of the Western European ways that are mostly ascendant in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. about our discomfort with death and what it means. You know, within a within certain religious contexts, obviously a death can be a release and a liberation. But for all of us, it certainly means a separation from things that we know and that we love. One of my colleagues, who's also a pediatric palliative care doctor, is South Asian. And her own spiritual path was that as a 13 or 14-year-old, she kind of came into awareness that we were going to die. And so she did this very difficult work as a teenager to really confront this, the reality of loss and separation. And it's not that she doesn't feel. She feels it very, very deeply. And she's also done work to sort of allow her to navigate through it with a kind of transcendence that I really admire. I really find extraordinary. And I wanted to keep coming back to what you keep reminding me to, which is that <laughs> when I meet a family for this first time, I'm not planning the child's death. I'm planning their life. I'm planning. Absolutely. Them. What brings you joy? What are the things that make you happy? What are the things that as a family matter to you? And let me tell you what I've heard from other families that has helped them or that we know from research. One of the big things that we think about a lot is hope. There's a lot of doctors say, oh my gosh, I don't want to take away hope. It's like, you know, get over yourself. You don't have the ability to take away hope. That's something that is so deeply inside a person that it may take on a different form. It may be transformed. But hope is always evolving and is always this really beautiful light that can be found no matter what the circumstances are. So I want to talk about that for a minute because I love that topic because we talk about hope all the time as, as a culture. And I think just as humans, we talk about hope and you, you don't give up hope and you have to have hope and there's always hope. But what I find is nobody's defining it. And what I think gets assumed is that hope is an equivalent to fixing. The only hope lies in fixing you, in curing you, in making you all better. And I think hope can come in a lot of other forms. And so that's what I think is so critical is what does that hope mean? And what does it mean to that child and to that family? And Tam, what I I wanted you to talk about is within the context of palliative care, when you ask a family, what does hope mean to you? What what does a good life mean to you? What do you want your journey to look like? You're not just taking notes and interviewing them and then filing that away. How does that then, as a palliative care practitioner, you and your team, 
How does that translate into action? How does that actually influence the journey for a child, a loved one, for my dad or your dad, if they would have had palliative care? What would it look like? So if I were to ask a family, you know, what are you hoping for, for your child, for your family? They might say, I'm hoping for my child to be alive as long as possible. And I might say, you know, I hear that from a lot of families. That means that they would do everything that they could medically to keep the child alive, including all sorts of medical technology. And for other families, that might mean just focusing on the things that are important for them today, even if it means their life is shorter. Where do you feel like you fall in that continuum? And if someone says to me, I want to do everything I can to keep my child alive, and that means ICU level care, a ventilator, a tracheostomy, I'm like, yes, let's do it. The only thing that I would say is if I, as a clinician, I'm concerned that we're prolonging a dying process and prolonging suffering, I'm going to share that concern with you. We're going to, we're going to decide that together if we feel that's the case. I think what's hard for physicians sometimes, and let's, let's take it away from Duchenne and take it towards a, like a cancer diagnosis, is that sometimes the hopes that parents bring feel so contrary to the medical narrative is it can be hard for us to even accept them. And so it's incumbent upon us to open our hearts up to those hopes completely. So let's you know, say if there's a child who's really actively dying of cancer and they're probably got days to live. And the parent, understandably in that situation, might say, what are you hoping for? So I'm hoping for a miracle. I'm hoping that you know God will do what only God can do and reach down and change my child's course. My call in that moment is to open up to that hope with them completely and really bring it into my heart as well and say, I hope that too. I really hope that that's possible. And just to hold that for a moment. Mm -hmm. And then the medical side of me is going to say, if for whatever reason that isn't possible and God isn't able to provide that miracle, what else might you be hoping for? What would you hope for in that situation where the miracle, the miracle that we're thinking about doesn't happen? And then that can come to a lot of things like, I hope he can be home. I hope that we can hold him again. I hope that he could see his dog. I hope that he could see his grandparents and spend some time with them. I hope that he's not suffering. I hope that he's not in pain. Yeah. And then that gives us all of those hopes are things that we can work on making happen. It's so patient-led. You know, it's so focused really on honoring and respecting the individuality of how people go through these struggles. It's really incredible. And what I hear too, Tom, in your telling of how you interact with patients is it's the time that you give to them. And I think that is just the greatest gift where people feel like they're not alone, as as you did with with your dad. And and I know with my dad and, and, and my mom both, I was at their I, I held my my mom's hand when she literally took her last breath. I was with my dad moments before he passed away. And there were people around, and we had a great support system, but it, you still can feel incredibly alone. And so I, that strikes me is that you are such a, just a presence in where you say kind of hold space for them and just listen and hear. And I'm acknowledging that for a reason because so many times, much of our journey happens outside of a medical setting. So, so much of what I did with my mom and my dad 
so much of just my my life with Joseph, it happens outside of a setting where we could have a Dr. Tom McNally, you know, as a guide next to us helping us. So let's say I have a newly diagnosed, let's say it's my dad, it's somebody's parent and their loved one. How can our loved ones support us and, and care for us and, and take that approach of really hearing us and listening instead of doing the, I say it, the shoulds, you know, you should do this, you should try that, you should call this person. How can we listen more than we speak? Maybe that's maybe that's one of the ways we can do it, right, is just be there and listen. How can we employ those characteristics of that loving, compassionate palliative care for each other? I think I, I know exactly what I would would love to to share, which is that there really is a wonderful technique that you can use for one another that we can use for each other. And I learned this from an extraordinary physician and writer and really spiritual guide, a woman named Rachel Naomi Remen, who wrote the book uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings, and is also a educator who uh, designed a course called The Healer's Art, which is to help medical students reconnect with their sense of purpose. And one of the fundamental things that Rachel teaches is the idea of generous listening. And I'm not sure if she's the one who developed it, but she certainly teaches it in a beautiful way. And in our usual pattern of listening, there are a lot of things going on in our listening. We're quickly judging the person that we're sitting across from. We're judging what they're saying. We're thinking, do I like this person? Do I not? Do I agree with what they're saying? Do I not agree? What am I going to say in response to this? You know, I'm already forming the words in my head. And all of that kind of disconnects us from being present in the moment with them. And so the idea of generous listening is to strive to put all of that extra chatter away to put it just aside and to open yourself up completely to the experience of the, the person that you're next to. And that can be particularly hard with the people that we're closest to because a lot of times our, our identities, our own stories get caught up with who that person is. So for example, I would love to be able to go back with my dad and maybe this is part of why I do this work. I would love to be able to go back and offer my dad some generous listening because I know he was carrying a lot of pain and a lot of suffering that he didn't know exactly how to articulate. And I'm not sure he ever felt safe with anyone enough to be able to describe it and to share it, to mm-hmm. have someone carry the burden with him for a few moments, or at least acknowledge it. And I think for one another, if we can provide each other with these moments of just sort of open acceptance, it's like listening with love. It's listening with your heart mm-hmm. and with a really open heart. And I think if we can do that, if we can aspire to that, we can really bring a lot of solace and consolation and we can reduce the loneliness of the world reduce the loneliness of the the days that we we walk together i agree and you know what strikes me too is the great challenge i think and i can speak for myself personally one of the greatest challenges is not imposing our own needs and our own fears and our own wishes on the person who we're supporting and, and loving through a difficult time I ran into this with my mom. So my mom was 80 when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I mean, she was 80. She was already at the end of her life, right? When you're 80, it's, you know, we anything could take you at any moment. But there were so much attempts at positivity. And she was so consumed in the beginning with this culture of you have to survive. You're a warrior and you, you got to make it through. And she embraced that. 
And she struggled with the whole notion of why am I not making it? Why is my cancer escalating? So there's this whole cultural thing about we desperately want to keep our loved ones. We believe living is is winning. And, and it creates a lot of tension in families and in, in conversations with our doctors. We were incredibly fortunate that my mom had a great oncologist. And he said to her, he said, you're 80. Something's going to take you at any moment. <laughs> Your time is limited. No matter what, cancer is just the thing that's here right now. So I'll do whatever you want. I will listen to your wishes, but I want to encourage you not to escalate your suffering and have a poor quality of life. My mom was lucky in that she had a supportive family. She had a great oncologist, but how do we get good at expressing what we really need amidst this cultural push of you're a warrior, you're a fighter, you're going to survive, your prayers will be answered. And there's just so much pressure to feel like the only right thing is that whatever it is that we're battling gets fixed. And if not, we you know, perhaps failed. But inside, I think there's parts of our hearts and our souls that are saying, you know, I'm tired. My mom finally said that. She said, I'm tired. And I was like, of course you're tired, you sweet little old lady. Your body is tired. How can we work on expressing that for ourselves, what our own needs are? Yeah, you know, it's it's such a good question. And, you know, there's actually, again, this there's some cultural difference here. So there yeah. was a study that came out about within the last 15, 20 years about the way physicians in the U.S. versus the way physicians in Britain talk about cancer. And physicians in the U.S. were much more likely to use battle or fight analogies or metaphors, whereas in Britain, they were much more likely to use the word journey. And so you're on a journey with a disease means that you get to the end of that journey. And maybe that means that you've separated from the disease and you live on to your life, or maybe the end of your life comes and you're still living with it. That's a very different version than I'm battling this disease and one of us is going to win. And particularly with some diagnoses to lose, I mean, it's not failure, but that's the way it gets cast if we, we think about it, when it can set up that kind of dichotomy. So I think it's really important that we use language around one another that doesn't call this out as a battle. Now, at the same time, coming back to what I was saying before, as a palliative care doctor, I also need to meet people where they are. Sure. And so if someone says to me, I'm in a tough battle with cancer, it would not serve them for me to say, oh no, you're not really in a battle with cancer. You're on a journey. For sure. But I think in our own personal lives, I think it can be shifted. And I think using that different language really makes a, a big difference. So Tom, what I what I don't want us to miss here is I do want you to give us an example. What are our challenges with, I know palliative care is not available everywhere, but we can certainly ask for it, correct? Yeah, absolutely. You can always ask for it. I think the problem is there just aren't a lot of pediatric palliative care clinicians available. They're mostly at large academic centers. I think they're probably fewer than 200 pediatric palliative care doctors in the country would be my guess. I don't know that for sure. That number is growing for sure, but still. And there, you know, the folks who have trained in adult palliative care can do this work as well, but there's varying levels of comfort, honestly, with caring for pediatric patients among doctors who primarily take care of adults. Yeah. It is so great to talk to you, Tom. I just, I mean, these are tough conversations. They're 
they're emotional, they're like, I feel like my stomach's kind of in a knot just thinking about all of these very heavy things, but it's also just such a relief that it's not like we have to hide behind a curtain and and there's these things that are, they're so real, they're part of all of our lives, but we so often avoid them. And I just, I think your willingness to kind of hold hands with us and, and face these things is just such an incredible gift. That's really gracious of you. I am constantly in awe of the, the courage of moms like you and dads of kids who are facing uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And when folks have the, the openness and again, the vulnerability to share with us the things that are so close to their heart, it's a real blessing for us. I mean, it's, it's a real privilege and we're real honored to do this work. Thank you so much, Tom, for being here. We could talk all day about this, and I am so grateful for your insights and just your compassion and your heart and your willingness to have these, the tough conversations with us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org. Thank you.